Well, yeah, it's not the, the last time I preached. I haven't preached for, I think, three weeks. Um, but when I did, we were we were talking a little bit about one of the post-resurrection stories and just noting that there aren't actually that many of those in the Bible and that the Gospel of John actually takes the cake with 33 verses, which isn't that much. And the story that the Gospel of John leaves us with in those 33 verses is just a simple story where Jesus is helping his friends who are out fishing to pull in a good catch. And then they all sit on the beach around a campfire and they have a meal together. And then John ends his book by, by writing this. Let's see here, let me put this into the chat for you. He just says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for all the books that would be written. So, okay, John, that's great. But he's like, there's tons of stories to choose from. So why does this one, this really simple one, summarize the meaning of Jesus for John? Why does he wrap up with that? And we explored a partial answer before, but to flush it out, I want to start by just telling you a story, uh, one of my childhood stories here. So I went for a, I went to public schools from fourth grade on, but before I went to public school, I went to some Lutheran schools, right? Right. That's where I learned about things like Advent and Lent and the other things they didn't teach me in my my Pentecostal church. But I've got this memory of being in the third grade at Trinity Lutheran School in Indianapolis. And we were in the gym and we were picking teams for dodgeball. And, you know, I mean, I was never like the first kid picked for the teams, but I also was never the last because I was decently athletic, like I can throw pretty well. And I remember saying to a few of the kids standing near to me, I was looking across the gym and I was like, Patty is definitely going to get picked, picked last because she is so bad at sports. And I think that was a little bit out of character for me, like I wasn't a mean kid. I'm over here checking to see if my mom is on so she could verify that she's not on this morning. <laughs> But I really wasn't. I was a pretty, like, um, surprisingly a little bit quiet and a little bit shy. And so I was especially horrified when one of the kids that I had said it to went and told Patty. And then, of course, Patty started crying, right? So there she is. She's crying in the gym because of something that I said. And I was absolutely mortified. And I hope that I apologized to her, but I don't actually have the memory of it at that point. I just remember feeling really ashamed of myself to the point where that's one of the few memories that I actually have of the third grade. So it kind of seared in my mind. And then I went off to public school and I didn't think I would ever see Patty again. But then in middle school, I got invited to a friend's church event. And then I found myself in one of those, you know, those big church vans sitting next to Patty and her sister. And all of those like feelings that I had, <laughs> had about what I had said to her a few years earlier kind of came flooding back. And I had this like, Oh my gosh, that's the girl I made cry. I was so embarrassed. And then I do remember apologizing. And I remember Patty was perfectly lovely. You know, she gave me that gift of knowing that, you know, I was forgiven. There wasn't going to be something she was going to hold against me. And then we were able, you know, to just have fun together. And I think most of us know that feeling, right? When we hurt somebody that we care about and then we're not quite sure how to repair the relationship, or maybe you didn't know them well enough to like, you know, really do that deep dive. And I just know that how bad I felt facing Patty and we weren't even that good of friends. And when I look at the story that John is sharing with us and I think about Patty, I'm just like, man, what I said to her doesn't even come close to how Peter had treated his friend Jesus. 
right? And so this is like the emotional setting of the end of John's gospel, right? There's this tension in the air. Like when I found myself sitting next to Patty in that church van, it's like, uh, what's going to happen? So in that final story in John, Peter, you know, he's one of the fishermen that's out on the boat and he's been out all night and he's not catching anything. And by that point, Peter had already had a rough few days, right? Peter had gone from telling his best friend Jesus at what we call the Last Supper, right? They were all sitting down, eating together, and he tells Jesus that he would never betray him, right? That he, he would die for him. And Jesus had, had countered that with, well, actually, you're going to deny knowing me three times even before the sun comes up. And Peter, being a little bit of a drama queen, was like, never, right? E even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. That's how Matthew puts it. And then we know the story that later that night, when Jesus was being questioned, Peter stood outside the building where that was happening in a courtyard around a campfire where some people recognized him as being Jesus's friend. And then he, of course, denied it three times. And then the rooster crowed and Peter felt that wave of shame of knowing that, you know, his friend actually knew him better than maybe he knew himself and that he'd gotten called out on being all bluster about sort of sticking up for Jesus, but in actuality having zero courage under all of that bravado. And then right after that, Peter watched that friend die a horrible death and he'd not even had a chance to tell him that he was sorry or revisit that. And so I think we can only imagine the guilt that Peter felt about those last interactions with Jesus, right? These regrets that he was probably reliving as he is out there fishing that morning on the Sea of Galilee. So when Peter was on that boat and he first recognizes Jesus walking on the shore, you know, we get that characteristic mix of emotions from Peter, right? First, he, he's elated, right? And he reacts to seeing Jesus exactly the way we would expect Peter to react, and that is with absolute unbridled passion, right? So he's he's fishing, and he's been fishing in probably his under tunic, right? So the men of those times would often wear like a lighter tunic under a heavier cloak. Um, some translations say he was naked, but it was, it's probably more likely that he had on this lighter cloak that was on. And so he grabs his outer cloak, and he ties it around his waist, and he jumps into the lake. And actually, one of the translations I love says, he flung himself into the sea, right? So he flings himself into the sea and he gets to shore and then what, right? He finds himself facing his friend knowing he'd let him down. And so they ate together. And then we're left to imagine during that meal, just sort of the underlying strain that may have been there. And then after they ate, Jesus and Peter took a walk down the beach so that they could chat it out. And Jesus asked his friend, I'm going to put this all into the, into the chat here. Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter replied, yes, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my little lambs. And a second time, Jesus asked Peter, son of John, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, shepherd my flocks. And then a third time, Jesus asked Peter, Simon Peter, son of John, do you cherish me? He says, Peter was grieved 
that this time Jesus had asked, do you cherish me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I cherish you. And Jesus said, feed my flocks. And it, it wouldn't have gone unnoticed to Peter that just as he had denied knowing right, his best friend three times, Jesus had asked him three times if he loved him, right? So three denials, three do you love me's. And it wouldn't have gone unnoticed to Peter that just as he had denied knowing his dearest friend three times while warming his hands around a charcoal fire while Jesus was being interrogated, here Jesus had also made a charcoal campfire and had served Peter food, right? So the scene between Peter and Jesus echoes the night of Jesus's arrest when Peter was disloyal to his friend and betrayed him. And so we can imagine that Jesus was still very deeply hurt by this. And so he's asking his best friend, essentially, can I trust you, right? Can I trust you not to harm me, not to harm anyone else? Can I trust you to find your courage when people are being unjustly accused and arrested, harmed, or killed. Like, do you really understand what it means to love me and to follow me? Because you're gonna be one of the leaders of this movement that carries on my legacy. Like, do you get what that entails? Right, lead my people, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock. And in this conversation, there's this deep restoration going on between the two of them that I think is really just a restoration of trust. Right. And it's only after being reassured that Peter really got it on a deep level that Jesus could then trust him to go and to teach others not to make that same mistake. I think until that point, Peter hadn't really been able to move forward after Jesus's death. Right. So he had gone back home to the Galilee. He'd gone back to his old job fishing and he's on a boat and he's catching nothing and he's trying to make sense of what happened and feeling guilty and probably a bit like a failure. But I think that's actually right where he needed to be, right? Peter had to have some things break down in his life before something new could break in, as my friend Susan King likes to say. I like that framework. He had to have some things break down in his life before some new things could break in, right? And so his pride, his fear, his false view of himself as the man who would never betray his friends, right? All of these things had to be revealed to him and he needed to be able to face those weaknesses with honesty before he could possibly think of leading others. And it's this process that eventually gave us the Peter who wrote this. This is from 1 Peter. It says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Right? Do we... Do we see this process that Peter has gone through echoed in his later writing? I think we do, right? He's saying, don't, don't be afraid of, of kind of failing or having that, that happen to you because it's actually really shaped and refined him. And I think before, you know, Peter had this experience, 
of betraying Jesus and kind of realizing that letdown, he just, he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready to lead. He had to learn to have greater empathy for the oppressed. And he had to do that by seeing just how much his own inaction had harmed his friend. Right? And that lesson was what developed those core values and then and shaped that future leadership. You know, I, I was thinking like, I made my friend Patty cry, but I never again made fun of somebody for not being athletic enough. As if I, I mean, I don't even care. I was like such a dumb little eight-year-old, right? But <laughs> not that eight-year-olds are dumb, but I clearly was there. But I never made that mistake again, right? A little bit of guilt can help us grow. Brene Brown um, reminds us, right, that guilt is actually a helpful emotion. So shame isn't helpful, but guilt is. Guilt says, I did something wrong, while shame says something about me is fundamentally wrong, right? So shame is not helpful, but guilt, knowing that we did something that harmed others, actually helps us grow and make changes. And I think a lot of us can relate to Peter, right, that We've developed greater empathy for various oppressed groups, often because of friendships that we've had, right? And of seeing the effects of injustice on people that we care about. And I noticed that like Jesus doesn't condemn Peter for this very human trait of needing to learn and to grow. He's hurt that Peter didn't get it sooner. And he's disappointed, um, just like I think he's disappointed when we fail to live up to our best selves. But Jesus allowed for repair with an invitation for growth, right? That there's this grace and this mercy and abundance in this relationship with Jesus. And we in turn are to offer that same grace and space to grow to one another. And so I think that John wraps up his gospel with this story because he sees this lesson that Peter learned as, as foundational for understanding the role of people who follow Jesus, right? This is like the summary. Peter learned not to participate in that scapegoating crowd as a silent bystander, right? That, that is the gospel. That's what it means to follow Jesus. But rather we're to align ourselves with the oppressed, at times putting ourselves at risk in order to express our solidarity and our love. Because um, love is the root and the source of all of that, right? It's why Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me, right? It all starts there from that space of love.